This morning, I'd like to take you to the book of Matthew, chapter number 5, to a passage that I believe will be very familiar to you. We typically call it the Beatitudes. From Matthew 5, through the context, you start in verse 1, and you go all the way through chapter 7. We're not doing the whole thing. But in the Beatitudes proper, as we call the Beatitudes, it's Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Now, I would, I would guess that some of you would have this chapter or this section memorized. Sometime in your life, you might have memorized the Beatitudes. I'm not going to have you say it right now. But you probably have, haven't you? Some of Anybody? A few? Okay. Well, you will recognize it anyway. Matthew 5, 3 through verse number 12. Let me read it to you, and uh, then we'll talk to the Lord in prayer and dive into this wonderful section. It says, Blessed, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, you might have the word meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Heavenly Father, this is a passage that's familiar to us in a lot of ways, but I pray that the familiarity will not keep us from seeing the message you have for us as we focus on these words, as we study from them. We do pray that your word will accomplish much in our hearts and lives. For you always send it forth to do your will, and scripture says it never returns to you without accomplishing that will. And as you send it our way today, we are those who are recipients of your loving words, and your building words, and your changing words. And I pray that all of that takes place in our heart today, that we are indeed built up in our faith, and that we are changed more and more into the image of Christ. Do your great work in us as we begin this study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just take a quick glance at... uh, the words mentioned in this passage, the identity of those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are gentle or meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, the persecuted. Does that describe Christ to you? The epitome of all of these would be Christ. This is an interesting passage, because as we approach it today, and and really I wanted to do a study with you on this section, as you could probably guess, 
Um, it's going to take us several weeks to do this. This is part of what they call the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, a very lengthy passage, and yet one that you know pretty well. A lot of passages in here that you recognize very well. This is where Jesus was speaking to the crowds. So verse number 1 tells you that. Uh, he saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain. He sat down. The people came to him. His disciples and the others came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now, there are some things that are particular about entering a passage like this that we bring up and we say so that we understand contextually what we're dealing with. Uh, we have to have the understanding of a passage like this because I'm, I'm what they call a dispensationalist, which is a big word. Uh, basically, separating the church from Israel is one of the major tenets of that. This passage is not Jesus teaching the church. All right? I say this very carefully. All right? That doesn't mean, then why are we doing it? All right? That's not what I mean. All right? This was not the church that sat down at his feet that day. That was the Jewish people. That was his disciples among them, as you saw in that verse. And he was talking to them, those who were under the law, he was talking to them. He was teaching them. Now, I'll also say this, and don't, don't, you know, go crazy on this phrase either. He's not teaching Christianity here in the way that we understand the term Christianity. Christianity is that regards the church and the teachings of the church. He's, he's showing something in this passage that I think is interesting to know. These people had heard the law. They were still living under the law. Christ hadn't been crucified yet and the church hadn't started. All right? What he was dealing with was their heart. Because you can follow the rules like a robot. And Jesus constantly addressed this with the Pharisees who loved the law but did not love the Lord. They knew the rules, but they didn't know the ruler. And Jesus taught them about the heart of the law. Alright? He knew what he expected of them. And it was more than just follow this line, do this ritual, do it just this way on this day at this time. He was asking them to check their hearts. Notice as you glance through this, these are not laws. These are heart issues. See the difference? And I, I, I'm setting that up for you intentionally as I do this, because God is very concerned about the heart. Very concerned about the heart. There are a lot of people who follow the rules, and Jesus will say to them, but I never knew you. It's because they had no relationship at all. So, what we are going to look at here... Like you could pick here, you could put Deuteronomy here, which most people say, well, that's not for us at all. But he talked there about loving the Lord with all your heart and soul and might and mind. Isn't that still something we should do? Okay. So, here's what I, I want to talk about here. The application of this passage, especially, is aimed right at our hearts too. 
Because we in Christianity, we in the church, can also follow rules and never engage the heart. I don't want to be one of those, do you? I don't want it to be just ritual. I don't want it to be just because it's Sunday I'm at church and I dress up a certain way. I want to be here because I love the Lord. And I want to worship the Lord because I love His Word. And I want to soak that in and I want to live it. Don't you? That's what we're dealing with in this passage. Really, honestly, as we dig through this, we're going to see that this passage marks people as different. Different. Now, the world is different. We would say that. The world has an attitude. Christians ought to have an attitude too. And it should be quite a bit different. So I'm going to present these words to you just as they are said. Alright? But understand, we're pulling principles out of it that's going right to the deepest part of our souls. Understand? Just wanted you to know where we're coming from as we enter into this passage because I, I think it's an intriguing passage. Matter of fact, nobody ought to go away saying, well, that was for somebody else. Because every layer of the Christian maturity is hit by this passage. If you're very young in the faith, if you don't know a whole lot of things of what to do, this is going to instruct you and challenge you. If you have matured in your faith and you're, you're pretty conversant in it, if you could at least do well in a trivia contest, this is going to hit you and challenge you. If you are deep in your faith, if you've been spiritually mature for a long time, this is going to challenge you. It truly is. It's hard to study it for a week and then come in here after spending so much time with it without feeling convicted and stomped all over and everything else because of a passage like this. And so I enjoy the challenge, and I hope that you will too. Uh, we are going to also have some fun with it. All right? There are so many things I want to do. I mean, introduction is four pages long, folks. I hate to tell you this, but listen to this. This... This passage, which is typically called the Beatitudes, we have fun with it. They're the B-attitudes, not the bumblebee. Everybody on Facebook puts bumblebees with it and stuff like that. The bees buzzing around, you know, and everything else. The B, B-E, the B-attitudes, the attitude you ought to have, your B-attitude. All right, they have fun with that. But I thought I'd take the E off the end and just start every one of these with a B. So, that's how I'm going to have fun with it. Like, verse number three today, where we're start, is, Blessed are the bankrupt. Alright? Hopefully, by describing it in such terms like that, you not only, if you've already memorized it, will have a word to attach to each of these to remind you, what is he saying here? Alright? So, I'm going to have some fun with you there along the way. And you don't have to memorize those, but you might enjoy it. Um... I want you also to note something else before we get very far into our thought. All of these, like blessed are the poor in spirit, end with the next word right after the comma, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? You see that word in there? It's in verse 3, it's in verse 4, it's in verse 5, it's in verse 6, it's in verse 7. All the way down, you can see right after that first phrase, the word for, and then it launches into the second phrase. 
more times than not, that is thought to be the reward for doing the first part. Right? Like, if I'm poor in spirit, then I'm going to get the kingdom of heaven, right? If I mourn, then I'm going to be comforted. If I'm gentle, then I'm going to inherit the earth. And they say, okay, now what, what is, is this our reward we're looking for? The, the Greek word is hati, right? We spell H-O-T-I, hati. Hati is that word for every time through. And it can be translated for, that is true, but primarily it's translated because. Now, by just saying that change, I have just changed an awful lot about what I'm about to say in this way. Because he's telling the cause for the first action. The second thing that's mentioned, I noticed this and I studied it through just to make sure I said this right. They're all in what we call in the Greek the indicative mood. For theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Is not will be, or may be, or could be, potentially, but is, it speaks of realities all the way down on the other side. In other words, these things on the second side are already reality. The only potential is the first part, not the second part. And the first part is based on the second part. Does that make sense? Let me try it this way. I'll read it to you. In other words, you can say it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what do they really have? They have the kingdom of heaven. And because they have the kingdom of heaven, they can be poor in spirit. Does that make sense? Okay. All of them, I'm going to bring this up every single week, so you'll get used to it. But this, this, is, this is not a merit system Jesus is setting up. I want you to know that. It's not a merit system. He, he's not saying, well, if, if you want to be comforted, if you want to find satisfaction, if you want to receive mercy, if you want to see God, if you want to be called the children of God, if you want to even inherit the earth... First, you must be those who mourn, or those who are gentle, or those who are merciful, and who are pure in heart in order to get the reward. He does not say that in this passage. It's not the merit system. But rather, it is because of these things that I mentioned at the end of the phrase, the recipient is able and willing to do the first part. Okay? I think you might say the second part is the motivation for the first part. It's our response to knowing what we have in the second part. All right. Now, I start that. That's page one. Page two. If you're looking for the word because, you won't find it in 99% of the English translations. I found it in two. And probably you're not carrying Kenneth Wiest's translation of the Greek New Testament right now, are you? Probably not. Okay. He had it. And another translation, which you only find actually in Logos Bible Software or Esort or something like that, called the Lexham English translation. That was actually started in 2010. They haven't put it in print 
yet. They said they're going to. I think it's going to be fun to see it. Because it, it's, it uses the literal Greek as it is. But those are the only two English translations that actually have the word because in it, instead of for. And I'm not saying now just go and scratch off the pages, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to help us understand. If you see the word because every time, it might help you understand what he's expressing here. And it's fascinating. Like I said, I'll help you with this. But this is what I found interesting. In that Lexham English Bible, the preface to it, this is what they said. We encourage every, every user of the LEB, which is a Lexham English Bible, whether reading it alongside the original language's text or not, to remember that once we understand the meaning of a biblical text, we are responsible to apply it first in our own lives. Aren't we? And then... Share it with those around us. That is the same thing the flight attendant tells you every time you get on that plane. And they say, if the oxygen mask drops, who puts it on first? You put it on yourself first, and then you help the person next to you. Why? Because you're selfish and you want to breathe? No, because if you go unconscious, they don't get help. So you put it on so that you're able to help them. Scripture is like that. You put it on. I put it on. We're responsible to put it on so we can help somebody else who needs it too. All right? I thought that was fascinating. That's what they put in their preface. And I said, that's what we're going to do here. Because we're going to talk about the bankrupt. And it's going to get personal. And when we get personal, we deal with it. And when we deal with it, then we are strengthened, we're instructed, we're built up, we are serviceable to somebody else. We're able to help them. So that's what we're going to do here. So, blessed are the bankrupt. That is going to deal with, let me see, I wrote it down here. Where did I write it down? Oh my. I know I put it. I'll find it. It gets personal. That's all I can say. All right. Moving to the next one. Morning, verse number four. Blessed are the bleeding. This would be interesting. This deals with our sinfulness. Blessed are the broken, the meek. That deals with our usefulness. Blessed are the burning, Matthew verse 6, 5 verse 6. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness, it deals with our desire. Blessed are the burdened, the merciful. It deals with our res- the response of our heart. Blessed are the blameless, in verse number 8, the pure in heart. It deals with the condition of our heart. Blessed are the binders. Guess who? Peacemakers. The binders. It deals with the goal of our heart. Blessed are the brave. Those who are persecuted. Verse 10, 11, and 12. It deals with the confidence of our heart. All of these deal with that. And I'm sorry I forgot the first one already. Because I was supposed to write it down and I didn't. 
But here's another thing I want to bring to you too. The first four of these Beatitudes, there's eight of them. The first four of them, verse 3 through 6, deals primarily with your relationship with God one-on-one. Your bankruptcy, the bleeding through mourning, the, the, um, the brokenness, the issue of burning for righteousness, that deals with your relationship with God one-on-one. Verse number 5 through, or 7 through 9, Beatitudes 5 through 7, concerns primarily the others, that horizontal response to what God has done for you, you do for others. It's an outward work, whereas the first four Beatitudes are an inward work. So your outward work is where you're burdened for others, merciful, where you're blameless and pure in heart, where you're a binder, you're a peacemaker. And then you could also throw in the last one there because it also deals with others. But what's interesting about the last one in verse number 10, 11, and 12 is this. It's mostly a negative response that comes your way. Being persecuted. Anybody like that? I mean, do you like being persecuted? No, I don't, I'm not the one who will say, I want more of that. It's a negative response from others for what you have done and for who you are. Regardless of what the world thinks of you, God says you're blessed. That's the last three verses that we will see. Blessed are the brave. It talks about your confidence. That's also an outward work. Here's one more thing, because I'm down to my... Last couple of pages of just introduction. But one more thing I find very interesting. Like I told you, there's so many layers of this, and it's hard to say, oh, it's just that, or it's just that. But here's another one, too. The, the link between several of these, like the very first of the inward works is poor in spirit. The first of the outward works is being merciful. Look at the link here. Those who know of their own bankruptcy in spirit, will know the misery of those who are laden with it. Right? They can sympathize because they've been there. And they can extend help because they know the way out. The merciful have to be bankrupt first. The mourners in the second inward work, those who mourn, has to deal with sin. The outward work is a purity of heart because those who truly mourn over sin do not want to repeat it. They don't store it in their hearts. They live pure. The inward work of being gentle or meek has an outward work of being a peacemaker. Because you become useful and obedient to the Lord and that turns into real ministry other people but first you have to understand what it is to be broken the inward work of hungering and thirsting for righteousness has an outward work of being persecuted for righteousness doing what's right should be our desire that's what the first one called for but it doesn't mean that we're going to be treated right because we do it The world persecutes. It's an interesting link 
when you put those side by side that way as well. So, this is what we're going to be studying today, and in the next couple of weeks, as to what does the Lord want us to be? What does the Lord want us to be? Verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit. I use the word bankrupt here. Blessed are the bankrupt. For those is the kingdom of heaven. Rarely do we look at the word blessed as privileged or honored. It's a very common word, by the way. We use the word blessed. We, we talk about blessed. Even the Greek word in front of us is an adjective. It's describing somebody who's happy. Some translations do that, happy are. Uh, blessed ones. Uh, the idea is being supremely well off. You know, something goes right for you. You're saying, boy, was I blessed. Right? We use it that way. You know what's interesting about this? Those old Greek scholars... The philosophers, those ancient guys, they didn't know what to do with this word. They were trying to identify, what does it mean to be blessed? And of course, they're doing it outside of the context of God's word, or God's way. And so they all sat around thinking, how do you, how do you, mean, how do you translate the word blessed in our society? And they thought it meant to be rich, to have great prosperity. And that was their concept of being blessed. And then they thought about it, and they said, no, no, it's even better than that. It is the great goal of being self-sufficient. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. Self-sufficiency, that's where it's at. That's where you get it reached the highest point. And then they started to note that, you know, being so rich causes greater burdens. It's the need to protect your wealth. And it's the need with all kinds of other concerns that come with it. Prosperity started to sour. Because they thought, well, you know, it's such a hard thing to stay prosperous. Is that what blessed really is? So they sought out uh, one of the positions on earth of anybody who is absolutely free from all concerns and all burdens and all worries. They said, who is that person? Because that's the person who's really blessed. And they found out it's only those who are dead. So now they had another problem. Because they said, only the dead can be called blessed. Then why are we wasting it on them? They don't know it. They're ignorant of it. Well, on here on earth, that's when you want to be blessed, not after you're dead. So, since the dead were ignorant of their blessed condition, condition, and didn't know they were in such a happy state, they were in an unsolvable puzzle. Philosophically, they said, how do you know that you are blessed and not be dead? That was their quandary. Because they couldn't put the pieces together. And you know the obvious problem. They were trying to do it without God. That's where they were. You see, you can't answer the word blessed with physical answers. You just can't do it. All the dollars in the world does not make one the happiest person on the planet. Do you know that? There's a lot of testimony out there of people who can tell you that. But the reality is, you can't take it with you. It's temporary. 
I heard a frightful thing on the news the other day, or a commentary or something. He said this way, you know, you really don't own your house. All these people, you know, buy their house, pay it off and all that. They say, yeah, I own this house, but what happens to it when you die? It becomes somebody else's. And I said, isn't that depressing? I thought, that's terrible to say that. You worked so hard and then it doesn't become yours anyway. Somebody else knew that story. He read the book of Ecclesiastes. What was his name? Solomon. Solomon with all his wisdom. And boy, you could say, if any man knew what it was like to have everything, this guy, he was there. But the more he knew, the greater the burden. The greater the burden, the more the knowledge, the greater the vanity. And he said, it's all empty. It's all empty. And he was frustrated by it. See, anytime you're aiming for ultimate self-sufficiency as the epitome of perfect blessedness, you find that you cannot ever approach it or even understand it if you leave God out of it. Blessedness is not found in things. It's not found in the things of this world. It's found in God's approval. God's approval. Remember the story of the sheep and the goats? Maybe you do. Matthew 25, the sheep, Jesus sitting on his throne, separating the sheep from the goats and all that. And he identified one group as blessed. Blessed of my Father. And he invites them into the kingdom that's been prepared for them. And I've always thought, what an intriguing little phrase. Of course, we all want to be on that side if we were part of this story, right? You'd rather be a sheep than a goat, wouldn't you? Okay. Um, if you're in, that, in those sandals and you're hearing these words, you'd rather say, I'm approved by God than I'm rejected by him. That's what those sheep and those goats were experiencing that way. Those were blessed because they were approved by God. They were welcomed in. They, and that's a, that's a big shift, by the way, in the whole thinking of this, because it goes from self-serving to God-serving. There's a big difference in the two. Now, which one do you think the Beatitudes falls on? Which way is God pushing your heart toward? Self-sufficiency? No. Matter of fact, the first word has to do with bankruptcy. Bankruptcy. That's where we're going to find this rather hard to swallow at times because the bumper sticker I've seen before, maybe you have too, he who dies with the most toys wins. You ever seen that one? Kind of cool. It doesn't work though. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and knew he needed something more. He was rich. And he says, what else do I need to do? Remember? He knew it wasn't sufficient. He needed to know more. Jesus told him real simple, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, you shall have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. Yes, there was that hard part of getting rid of everything he had. But the harder part was the last two words. Follow me. Because that's giving up his own self-desires. That's giving up his own self-sufficiency that was following. And that was the hardest thing to swallow. The ruler walked away 
Peter scratched his head, said, Jesus, I, I, we gave up everything to follow you. Here's what he said, my translation. What do I get out of this? If he didn't make it, what do we get if we are following you and we've told this, we've done this? And you know what kind of question that is? That's a question of, is this worth it? It's really a question of, do I trust you? Do you trust what the Lord says? I mean, honestly, check your heart. When it says this in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. You know what that verse says? Is that God will never forget what you have done in ministry to his people and in his name. God will not forget any of it. That means someday you'll stand before him and he can recite it all. That means he's concerned about it, he's conscious of it, and he will reward. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is actually that involved in your ministry? That he cares that much about it? Now that's the kind of questions people ask, because if you're going to invest your whole life down here, you might be like Peter, what do we get out of it? What do we get out of this? To what degree do we trust Him? Because this is what I think. To the degree that you believe Him, to that degree you will serve Him. Think that through for a while. To the degree that you believe Him, to that degree you will serve Him. What does it mean to be blessed? Blessed. Blessed are. Every single one of these phrases start that way. Blessed are. These are the ones approved by God. You say, okay. Now, Jesus, is he not God? Yes, he is. So if Jesus is God and he's saying, these people are blessed, could he have said, this will make me happy? Yes, he knew exactly what would make him happy. This is what he approves, right? These are words from God. So, this is God's commentary on what we do that finds approval in his sight. Jesus said so. It comes with explanations why they are blessed. Because, and all the way through, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. Those are going to be really interesting things to work through with you, I know. But he gives a reason why they are blessed people in the first place. And then the word beatitude pops up. And I told you we're using this phrase. Do you know that's from the Latin? You who carry your Vulgate with you here on Sunday mornings? I don't know if anyone does. You would find the word at the start of every one of these. Beatitude, beatitude, beatitude. That's the Greek, or the Latin word. Uh, speaking of an attitude, as some people would say, the blessed words. The attitudes of what ought to be. 
J. Vernon McGee added this as well. The Sermon on the Mount is not the gospel. And I think it's important just to add this. It is the law. It is the standard by which God expects his people to live up to it. The gospel is mercy and forgiveness and grace to help those or help us in the fact that we cannot measure up. We are sinners and Christ died and rose again for us. We simply couldn't do it. But Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's why he can set this before us. Because he's the one who fulfilled what God expected. It comes back to Christ, doesn't it? And your relationship with him. So I want to to just challenge you as we go through this word, blessed. I want to be a blessed person, don't you? I want to hear God say to me, and I'm sure you do, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Do you long to hear such words? I think you do. Would you like to wear the term blessed? This is what we're going to be looking at. That's why I find it so challenging as I go through this. But one more thing to add to what we're looking at here. When he talks about blessed, there's an element in all of these of a progression of sorts. Uh, uh, If you take the picture of the maturing Christian who starts in the form of bankruptcy, and he he's then mourning for his sins, and then he's broken uh, to be useful, and then he's burning and growing in his righteousness, his desire, and then he starts to become merciful in his actions, and he keeps himself pure in the process, and he becomes a peacemaker to bring people together. You can see he's come a long ways from when he was first bankrupt. But as it grows... It seems to me, when you get to verse 10 and 11 and 12, God reserves the persecution for those who wear his name to those who are truly blessed. Think about it. He entrusts their name, his name, to them to wear out in a world that's going to persecute him because of that name. God gives you the right to wear his name. That's an incredible blessing, folks. I'm not sure that everybody gets the right or the blessing of persecution. You say, well, I don't want it. I want to challenge you with that. Because if you wear his name, the world will see it. If you mature in your faith, the world will see it. And they will say something about it. I'll tell you the truth. When I was a teenager and I first heard of what happens to Christians, I said, well, I never want them to know I'm one. I remember that as vividly as I sat in the back row of that church. I said, I don't want to be that mature because I don't want to be persecuted. Boy, was that a heart problem. That was a heart problem. The Lord worked on me over the years, and I'm not saying I'm looking for it now, but I'm just saying... As the maturity level grows, the Lord gives more responsibilities. I think that will be seen as we go through here. But blessed are the starting place, the poor in spirit, the bankrupt. Let me just give you a a sample of this, because there's no way I could, with all my introduction, I could do a whole lot. But here's what I know. Generally, we're not impressed with the bankrupt. 
Are we? The world will give you the ten richest people on earth in a list, but they will not give you the ten poorest people on earth in a list. Because it doesn't impress anybody. To be a tokos, that's the word for a beggar. That's the word that's in front of you. Somebody who crouches, who uh, is reduced to absolute poverty. We used to word, use the word when I was a kid, they were the moochers. Right? They were, you know what? They always needed a quarter for something. High schoolers drive me crazy. I never took money because I knew they'd ask me for it. The mo- they were the moochers. Here's a picture. We're not talking about somebody with a small salary that just gets by. We're not talking about somebody who could scrape out a living. We're talking about somebody who is not self-sufficient, but is self-deficient. They have nothing. That's the poor he talks about here. The poor in spirit. They have nothing. They are totally dependent on others for everything. Lazarus was a beggar. You'll find his story in Luke chapter 16. Remember, he was under the table of the rich man. He was eating the crumbs of the rich man that fell from the table. That's the beggar. That's the word he's illustrating here in the passage in front of us. Those who are so wretched, this is what Lenski, the theologian, wrote, so wretched they bring absolutely nothing to God but their complete emptiness and their need, and they stoop in the dust for pure grace and mercy only. This is their condition, and their attitude. It comes with a true repentance, as Linsky would say, preached by Jesus on the basis of all who would come to God. You see, the world, if they made this list for you today, these Beatitudes, this is how it would go. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the fun. Blessed are the strong. Blessed are those who are full. Blessed are the victorious. Blessed are the shrewd. Blessed are the deal makers. Blessed are the ones who never face conflict. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The exact contrast to every single one of these that the world would say. To be poor in spirit is to realize you have nothing. And I'll just tell you how it is. Spiritually, that is absolutely true. We have nothing to commend us before God. We're sinful, right? Dead in our trespasses and sins, right? What do you have to offer? Nothing. What do you have to give to a holy God? Because after all, if you're going to appease a king, you've got to bring a gift. What are you going to bring before him in his throne room? What are you going to set before him? This fundamental truth of the scripture is this. We have nothing to offer. Nothing. First of all, he possesses everything. So what else are you going to give him? Secondly, he's in need of nothing, so you're not filling up a hole that he's missing something. Third, you don't have any gift that matches the magnitude of who he is. You all know this, you have a debt you can never pay. Do you know that every time you stand before him, you owe a debt, a debt that 
if you had to pay it, you would need a thousand million deaths just to pay for one sin. And it still would never satisfy. You can die for a hundred years or as everlasting as God is as everlasting He is. And at the end of everlasting, if there is such a thing, which there isn't, but just imagine, you still owe the debt. Because we can never, ever pay for what we have done against the Holy God. We can't do it. That's the nature of our poverty when we go before a holy God. We have nothing to offer. Nothing. You can't give him a tattered scrap or a bent, dirty coin, which is the best maybe some of us could even offer. But we have nothing to offer. I'll just close with some words here, and then I'll come back to this next week too. But James Gray was one of the presidents at Moody Bible Institute. He was brought in because he was a theologian. He was a great one at that. And he was one of them who actually put theology to words, and you've sung his song. Say, have I? Oh, yeah, it's in your old hymn book. I know it's been sung in this church many times before. The title is Only a Sinner. Remember it? Here are the words, in case you've forgotten. Not have I gotten, but what I received. Grace has bestowed it since I have believed. Boasting excluded. Pride I abase, I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. Once I was foolish, and sin ruled my heart, causing my footsteps from God to depart. Jesus has found me, happy my case, I now am a sinner, saved by grace. Tears unavailing, no merit had I. Mercy had saved me, or else I must die. Sin had alarmed me, fearing God's face. But now, I'm a sinner, saved by grace. Suffer a sinner whose heart overflows, loving his Savior to tell what he knows. Once more to tell it, would I embrace. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. Is that us? We want to examine a little more of what it means to be bankrupt. But just think of the word for about a seven days, could you? Think about the word bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why does God treasure that so much? Heavenly Father, we have so much to learn about who you are, about what you approve, what you see. And you see it all. What you see in our lives, what you see in our hearts, what you see in our ministries, what you see in our relationships, you see it all. And we do, as human beings, go very strongly towards self-sufficiency. We try to do it our way, with our strength, in our wisdom, for our glory. And the very first words we read on this page here is quite the opposite. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And I think we need an education there, Lord. I think these hearts need challenged in this department. And it's the first place and the best place to start.
Help us to grasp what's before us so that we stand before you with that title, Blessed. Not, Lord, that we're looking for another award to hang on the wall, another certificate to say we've arrived, but we want to be who you want us to be. We want to be like our Savior. So do your work in our hearts, we pray. Challenge us throughout this time with this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.